Good morning. It's really good to be here. It's been uh, quite a few years uh, since I've been here. Um, a lot has changed. Um, I know Bill Haller hasn't changed. He still said something to me, and I wasn't sure how to take it, you know. So th thanks, Bill, for making me feel comfortable. Um, I'm glad Todd's feeling better, but it's a joy to be with you this morning. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name's Kim Costanza. I'm uh, the director of Delray Ministries, um, which Todd has been a great, uh, important part of um, for the last 12 years. Um, we exist to uh, identify and train and then provide for missionary pastors who will go into the sugarcane fields and plant churches there. Um, we have about 20 uh, men and women who we support and it is really quite amazing to see what God is doing through them over the last 12 years. Um, and I will say to you, one of the main reasons of that success is Todd. Um, and you know the quality of his teaching and preaching. It has laid a foundation there of the gospel that was not there. And so I say thank you to you for your support and prayers, and especially for the 12 years that Todd has been working with Del Rey. <clears throat> I'll give you one story um, because I was there uh, a couple of weeks ago and um, of the effectiveness of Del Rey. Um, as many of you know, and some of you have been on the trips with Meeting God and Missions, it's a short-term mission um, that works in the villages there. And one of the reasons we started Del Rey was that there was a lot of preaching of the gospel, but there was no follow-up. There was no healthy church, no pastor, no disciple-maker. Uh, to follow up. And so uh, this past uh, couple of weeks ago, uh, one of the ladies that came down, she had a real heart for the sugarcane workers. So she collected hats and sunglasses and gloves for them. Um, and if you have any idea how brutal that work is, those things would be great gifts. Um, so we drove out to the middle of the sugarcane fields, and one of our directors was able to find a place and get permission from the, uh, the sugarcane barons that we could speak to the workers. And so we parked the truck, and these guys came out of the fields, and uh, maybe 75 or 100 of them gave them a sandwich, gave them the uh, sunglasses and hats, and then one uh, man who was a gifted evangelist preached the gospel to them. And I don't know how many, maybe 15 men gave their lives to Christ. And that's wonderful. But the question was always, what happens next? What if that was real? And uh, <clears throat> that was workers who were in a village called Vasca. And we have a pastor, Anna and David. They're a couple that work there. They told me that night, at least several of those men showed up in church. And the reality of that is that the gospel that's preached is followed up and that seed that is sown is tended to and nurtured. And we're seeing uh, a real transformation in the villages. So praise God for that. And, and again, I just want to thank you for your support of Del Rey. <clears throat> uh, true confession, uh, I was preparing when I think Todd texted me Thursday morning uh, to see if I could preach. And I love to preach. But not having to preach every week, I like to sort of slow cook messages, maybe take two, three weeks to prepare something. And it was Thursday. And I wrestled with that. <clears throat> and I said, yeah, Todd, I'll, I'll come. So Thursday, I have in mind a message I was resurrecting and working on. Friday, I spent a couple of hours on it. And I think I sent the notes to Matt saying this is what I'm going to preach on. 
about 10 o'clock Friday morning, I just don't have peace about it. And uh, I, I grabbed my wife and I said, would you pray with me? Because I think there's another message I'm supposed to preach. And, you know, I've already put a lot of time into this. And it is Friday at 10, you know. And uh, I was having this little argument with the Lord. You know, hey, I only had three days to prepare. And I've already used two of them, you know. And I could hear the Lord saying back, kind of like, well, maybe you should have asked me first before you started working on that message. But anyway, here we are. So I want to just share this. But I have a great freedom this morning in the message. And I hope it's a, a message that will bless you, especially as we come to the communion table. <clears throat> Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this morning, for the new life we have in Christ, for the new creature that we are in Christ. Thank you for the ministry of your spirit. And I pray for a fresh anointing of your spirit, that the words that I speak would be words that are uh, profitable and true and right and build up the body here. I pray for the Holy Spirit to open the ears of those listening, that they might hear what you would want them to hear. And we give you glory and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Sorry for the cough. I got COVID on uh, January 4th. Hit me uh, pretty hard. I'm, I'm fine. I feel well, but I still have this nagging cough, so forgive me for that. Um, the title is Barabbas, What Will You Do With Your Freedom? And we've read the text already. The story of Barabbas is in all four of the Gospels. It's usually uh, preached or read around Easter time. Um, but I felt today as we come to the table, it was most appropriate. Let me put that story in context Jesus has been arrested and is now on trial before Pilate. The Jews did not have the right to execute anyone, so they had to take him to Pilate, the Roman governor, for permission. Jesus had already been beaten. He'd already been abused. And now he stands before Pilate in this public trial. You know, this story still grips me every time I read it. As I said, it's mentioned in all four of the Gospels, and the things that are in all four of the Gospels are usually very key to the Gospel message. Barabbas was the worst of criminals. The text we read said he was notorious. Think of the notorious criminals of our time. Charles Manson, Jeffrey Dahmer, Osama bin Laden. This is the kind of criminal Barabbas was. He was the worst, clearly guilty, and everyone knew it. Whose idea was it to choose Barabbas as the criminal to release? The Gospels aren't really clear on this point. Possibly it was Pilate. As you saw in the text, he saw the just man, Jesus, and his wife had told him, have nothing to do with this. So maybe he chose Barabbas thinking, surely, they are not going to let Jesus go in exchange for this man. Possibly it was the chief priests and elders. It's hard to believe, but they hated Jesus so much that they wanted to be clear that they would rather have the worst known criminal released than have Jesus on their streets. His charges were well known. He was part of a rebellion against Rome and in the process had committed murder. Rebellion against the government and murder are the highest of crimes in almost every country and the most severe penalty, usually death. Think about this as a trial in your lifetime that you heard about a verdict 
that felt unjust. Can you think of one? It causes this indignation in your heart. And you want to rise up and say, this, this is not right. This is not right. However you feel about a recent court case, nothing compares to this. This is the most unjust decision ever rendered. The absolutely guilty for the absolutely innocent. There were no unknown facts, no doubts, and everyone approved of it. Jesus is executed, and Barabbas walks away scot-free. What you may not have seen in this story is the personal connection between Barabbas and you and I. And here's what I'd like you to consider this morning. We, we in fact, every one of us is Barabbas. Now depending on what you've decided to do with Jesus, you are on one side of this story or the other. But either way, you and I are Barabbas. Let me explain with a couple of points. <clears throat> First of all, every one of us was guilty of the highest crimes, rebellion and murder. Our rebellion was not against Rome, but against the high king of heaven. Colossians 1.21 says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. You see, it's not just, well, I lied a little, or I cheated a little, or I looked at something bad. In my mind, I was a rebel against God. I wanted no part of his law or his rule. I was in rebellion, and so were you. Romans 5.10 also calls us this same reality. We were God's enemies. But murder? You know, most of us, even me, as bad as I was, I said, well, I never killed anybody. But I believe, yes, we're guilty of murder as well. We'd, I think we'd like to think if we were there in that crowd, maybe we would be the one lone voice saying, no, 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 release Jesus. But you and I, if we're honest with ourselves, apart from the preeminent work of the grace of God, we would have been with the crowd saying, crucify. Let his blood be on us and on our children. Guilty of murder of an innocent man. Brothers and sisters, let's not minimize our sin. Let's not make it small. It's the highest of crimes against the highest of kings. Second of all, every one of us was under, under the sentence of death, just awaiting execution. Ephesians 2 says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgression and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Brothers and sisters, we were dead men walking. We were on death row, just awaiting our execution. <clears throat> Thirdly, by no merit of our own, Solely through the unjust exchange and the execution of the innocent Christ, we have been set free. What did Barabbas do to get out of prison? Nothing. What could he do? Nothing. He was sitting in that cell waiting, and all of a sudden they call his name, and he walks out scot-free. It's the same with you and I. 
If we think we helped a little in the salvation of our souls, we're kidding ourselves, right? We, like Barabbas, were locked up and just awaiting that reality. There's a current contemporary song, You Called My Name and I Ran Out of That Grave. Anybody know that one? I can't remember who sings it. It's a very joyful song. If you Google it on YouTube, you know, there's crowds and they're shouting. There could be another chorus to that. Barabbas, they called my name and I walked out of that prison. But as I walked out of that prison, someone else walked in. The Son of God looks at me and exchanges his life willingly for mine. It's a different feeling, isn't it? The other one was about Lazarus, and I get it. We're Lazarus, you know. Jesus speaks our name and we call out. But in that story, Lazarus was a pretty good guy. He was a friend of Jesus. Not so with Barabbas. In Lazarus' story, no one had to die for him to come out of the grave. In this story, Barabbas is only free because of Jesus. I hope those points as we come to the table just help your heart be thrilled and with great reverence and that sorrow and love that's mingled there, appreciate what Jesus has done for each of us. But there's even more to this story, and that's where I want to go for the next couple of minutes. This is the most amazing reality, that through the cross, you, Barabbas, have the right to become Bar Abba. You, Barabbas, have the right to become Bar Abba. You know, names in the Bible often have meanings, and Barabbas is no different. Barabbas is a mixture of two words, Bar and Abba, which mean, anybody? Son of the Father. Good. Abba. It's a term that's used three times in the scriptures. If you remember, Jesus prayed it in the garden. But look at these two other passages in terms of your identity as a Christian and a child of God. Galatians 4, 4 through 6. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You get it? Make the connection. Romans 8, 14 through 16. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. You see, you and I have not just been forgiven as if that's not marvelous enough. We've been adopted. God, the God of love, has said to you, Barabbas, no matter what you've done, whatever made you this wicked, come live with me. Let me love you and restore you and share in my inheritance. I want to take a minute and talk about this word, Abba, because maybe like me, you were taught a meaning of that word. As a young Christian, I was taught that Abba meant daddy. That a, an affectionate name that a child calls a father. Maybe some of you were taught that too. And I taught my kids that. And it's 
a nice thought. It's a sweet thought. It helps us to think of God in a special way. But as I studied that word more recently, that's really not an appropriate translation. It is a different term for father. But it's not the one a little child would use. It's the term that a son, an adult son, would use who fully understood their rights as sonship. One who was sure of their identity and their duty as a grown son. Now that makes a big difference, doesn't it? It implies two things. A declaration of intimacy and obedience. Now that makes a lot more sense to me as Jesus is praying in the garden. Think about it. It's not Jesus kind of reverting to a little child whimper. It's Jesus as a fully grown son acknowledging his intimacy with the father and yet his obedience to the father. And so he cries Abba saying, I know who I am before you. I would rather not do this. But what? Not my will, but yours be done. Do you see it? Do you see that significance of Abba? It's very important because as we then look at it in our identity, it changes the way we might think of ourselves. Let me go back to that Galatians 4 passage for a minute. I want to read it in a larger context and maybe this will make sense for you. Starting in verse 1 there. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until a time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive our adoption to sonship. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. Do you get the picture here? What God has given to us is full rights as sons and daughters. Full rights to the sonship and the inheritance and the freedom to do whatever we want with that inheritance. I want you to think about that for a minute because I want to ask a hard question. As I finish up, this is the question that's the title of the message. What did Barabbas do with his freedom? Anybody? I'm glad you don't have an answer because the scriptures don't give us one. And I believe it leaves that question unsaid because Barabbas is me and Barabbas is you. And each of us has to make a decision of what we will do with the freedom and the inheritance we've been given. Barabbas could have done anything he wanted. He could have gone back to rebellion. He could have began a new life. You, Barabbas... If you've been set free, if you've been adopted, if you've been transferred from Barabbas to Bar Abba with full rights of the inheritance, what are you doing with your freedom? What are you doing with your inheritance? I would say this. I believe this is a, is a root of a major problem in American Christianity. 
We've done a good job of teaching and preaching the grace of God unto salvation. Amen. We have not done a good job of asking the question, how are we handling that freedom and the inheritance we've been given? Let me pose a few options to you from biblical sons who had great inheritances. In the story of the prodigal son, or as Tim Keller would call it, the prodigal father, are you acting like the younger son, squandering your inheritance? What do I mean by that? Let me explain the comparison. The younger son took his inheritance, which was freely given to him, and he left his father's home to do whatever he wanted. And what did he do? He wasted it on temporal and carnal things. When we take our inheritance that way, hey, I'm free from the burden of the law. I can do whatever I want, which is true. We use grace like an ATM card. We use it like an ATM card. I know I shouldn't do that, but I've got grace. You know, I'm covered by the blood. That's a flawed gospel, isn't it? I know you know that because I know who your preacher is. It's a flawed gospel. It's a believe-only gospel, and it's permeated America. Just say the prayer, just pray the prayer, and then you take that ticket and put it right back in your pocket, and you go and live however you want. And you know what that produces? Thorns and thistles, right? It's a cheap grace gospel. Let me reinforce that with another son who had a great inheritance. Uh, Hebrews 12, 16. Make sure that no one is immoral or godless like Esau. You have a different translation, but we can use that one. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau who, for one morsel of food, sold his birthright. You all know the story, right? Esau, firstborn, he had the inheritance rights, right? By the way, whose inheritance rights did he have? Anybody? Isaac? Isaac, that's true. But whose inheritance rights did Isaac have? Abraham. Don't miss this. The greatest inheritance any human being ever, ever was given was the promise of Abraham. That's what he had in his possession. And for a single bowl of soup, he sold it. Now, you and I read that and we say, what an idiot, right? But when we act on our own impulses, when we lack self-control, Aren't we just as stupid as Esau? Aren't we? I know it's wrong. I just need to do it anyway. I just can't help myself. But I've got grace. I'm being a little hard here, but I believe there's a call here to the Abba that is a responsibility to live like the son that we were given. Let me just take a little um, side note on this if I could. We've got a couple of minutes, don't we? This word fornication or immorality, depending on your translation. It's there for a reason, and I just want to speak to that. My wife was sharing some statistics with me uh, this week about the number of Christian men and women involved in immorality, whether virtual or physical. 
And it's staggering. It's staggering. And I get it. I understand. I'm a man. And I don't think there's ever been a time when immorality was, you don't have to go to the door. It comes to you, right? We all know that. But do we not have the power to win that battle? That's an offense to the gospel to say we don't. And I would say to us, brothers and sisters, if this is a problem, begin by confession, get some help, and find the reality that we are not just saved from the penalty of sin, we are saved from the power of sin. Do not be godless like Esau, who for a single moment of pleasure sold his birthright. Would you meditate on that this week? Or... Maybe we act like the older son, carrying the burden of living in our father's house, you know, slaving away. Here I am in church. I don't really want to serve. I don't really want to pray. I don't really want to worship. But I'm here, Lord, you know, because I want the blessing. You know, that's another flawed gospel, the entitlement gospel. Are you familiar with that? You know, I do all the right things because God's going to do all the right things for me. That's the older son mentality. Hey, we've been on both sides of that. I know it. I have. But here's another option. Will you, could you be like the one true son, the true son of Abba, who poured out his life for us, knowing he would bring many sons to glory? That son now lives in you and lives in me. Can I get an amen just so I know you're awake? That son lives in me. And he lives in you. And that, by his grace, gives us the ability to live as he lived. So as we finish, let me say this before we come to the table. What should a Barabbas do after being set free, after being made Bar Abba? Let me make three suggestions. First, repent of your rebellion. Not just the bad things we're doing, the heart of rebellion that we have that says, I want to do it my way. I want to be king. Allow Jesus to be king in that way that you say, oh, I love your law. I love your ways. I love your kingdom. I love to serve you. I am no longer a rebellious son. Second, live a life of continual gratitude toward Jesus and the Father. When you think about this reality of being Barabbas and you really meditate on it and as you walk out of that prison, you see the Lord Jesus walking in. How can it not help us to say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for who you made me and who you became so that I could become a son of God. Never get too far from this story. Never get too far from the gospel. Be like Colossians 2, 7, overflowing with thanksgiving. And lastly, let the spirit by whom we cry, Abba, rule and reign in our lives so that we will live a life that is worthy of our calling and adoption. That's how we do it, amen? We live by the spirit and that spirit by whom we call Abba, which has that sense of intimacy and obedience we are enabled to live a life worthy of the high calling of Christ. As we come to the table, let's rejoice and be glad, brothers and sisters.
we were in that prison and he exchanged himself for us. We who were Barabbas with no hope have become the children of God with full rights. Let us truly cry, Abba, declaring we grasp the full understanding of both the privilege and the duty, the intimacy and the obedience of a child of God. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you this morning for the story that we've read. Lord, we all know in our hearts what you did for us. I pray that if anyone has not allowed Jesus to be their Lord, that they would see themselves still locked in that prison, still dead in their sins, and that they might turn and allow Jesus to exchange his life for theirs. I pray for those of us who are sons, Lord, that this word Abba, when we pray it, when we cry it, that we would have that sense of intimacy and also duty and obedience. Forgive us, Lord, when we have lived as rebels, when we should have lived as sons. Forgive us, Lord, for taking the freedoms that you've given for us as a license to do whatever we want. But Lord, by your grace this morning, as we come to the table, thank you for your new mercy. Fill us with your spirit that we don't fulfill the desires of our flesh and that we bear fruit for your kingdom and your glory. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.